Walmart's Black and Unlimited platform is making it easier than ever to support Black-owned brands. When you go to walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited, you'll not only get to shop products from Black-owned brands, but also learn about founders like Janelle Stevens of Camille Rose, which specializes in products for naturally curly hair. Or the Allison Devon, founder of Teespressa. And there are many more awesome products that you have yet to discover. It's all easy to find with Walmart's Black and Unlimited platform. Join in on celebrating Black brands today and every day at Walmart. We are Black and Unlimited. Visit walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited to discover more. That's walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by This Is Not Church podcast and the letter F. And you. (laughs) If you've made it this far, my name is Nat Turney, my brother John Turney, and I co-host This Is Not Church, the podcast. And this is sadly the level of discourse that you can expect to find if you tune in every Monday when we drop new episodes. But all joking aside, John and I see this as as an opportunity for us to address issues that we don't think are addressed nearly enough inside of evangelicalism. So LGBTQIA plus issues, BIPOC issues, social justice issues. We like to talk to a broad variety and range of people and really try to find places of commonality for everybody. So check out the podcast. Every Monday, our episodes drop. Wherever you stream podcasts, you can find us. Remember, this is not church. And to that, John says, Peace. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, friends. How are you? Welcome back to another podcast interview episode. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, great to be with you. This episode, I brought on Megan Murphy-Gill. She is the author of the book, The Sacred Life of Bread, Uncovering the Mystery of an Ordinary Loaf. This is a great conversation. She is an Episcopal priest, and we talk a lot about that and how it differs from our evangelical tradition, but also how maybe there are some overlaps. And what do we do if we eat moldy bread? Yeah, you see where I'm going with this? So this is a really great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. As always, I can't thank you enough for watching or listening to this podcast. If you like our content, you want to share it, that'd be so helpful to get the word out that we exist, helping to hold space for thousands of people as they navigate their faith tradition, trying to find better paths forward. And of course, we are a nonprofit organization. That's how we're sustained. It's not through ad revenue. It's not through me having a business. We are a legitimate nonprofit and donations are what sustains us. It's what allows us to do this work. It's what allows us to have everything that we do paywall free. So if you want to donate, I'll put a link in the show notes. All right, friends, short and sweet intro today. Enjoy this episode. Talk to you later. Hey, friends, this is Noah, the podcast producer for the New Evangelicals podcast. Just interrupting this interview for a moment to remind you that Tim and I are going to Theology Beer Camp in Springfield, Missouri, this week from October 19th through the 21st. And yes, there are still tickets available. This is going to be such a great chance to meet other friends from the community and get to nerd out with other theology nerds, meet some of your favorite podcasters and musical performers, and listen to some absolutely brilliant scholars and theologians on all of our favorite topics to talk about. This is going to be an incredible year. I mean, go ahead and 
you go to the Homebrewed Christianity website and just take a look at the lineup. There's going to be Adam Clark, John Dominic Crisson, Trey Pearson, Grace Jisun Kim, Flamey Grant, Derek Webb, Dr. Roberto Chia Espinoza. I mean, the list goes on. It's going to be so much fun. I went last year and I got to meet so many of you from the community for the first time. And it was a great experience. So please, if you see somebody in the corner off setting up microphones for the next event, it's probably me. Just come say hi. I would love to meet you. I'm going to let you get back to this interview. Check out the link in the show notes if you want to learn a little bit more about this weekend. And I hope I'll see you there. All right. Um, this will be another fascinating conversation. I do my best to find people who I'm like, I think the audience would really appreciate hearing this person's perspective. So Megan Murphy Gill, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. It's a pleasure to have you. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I will say you are an Episcopal priest. Is that yes. right? Okay. Yep. Um, we've had a few people lightly touch on that topic and we'll, we'll probably do more on that in it during this conversation. Your book is called the sacred bread of life, uncovering the mystery of an ordinary loaf. Now I am half Italian. So bread is like a staple of my diet. So I'm definitely in for anything that wants to talk about bread in the book. Um, before we hop into that part, I would love to know kind of your backstory. I mean, most, I'm assuming anyway, most of our audience grew up more like me, which is evangelical and in like this Christian culture that we were a part of. Is that your backstory as well? How did you grow up and end up becoming a priest? Uh, no, that's not my backstory at all. Uh, Lucky you. Fact, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, like uh, my husband grew up more on that more on that end. His, mm. He's a Methodist or he grew up Methodist. His father is a Methodist minister, but he grew up very much more like in that world. And I learned things about that world all the time from him. And he will say things and I will say, oh, see, that's just not how Christian was for me. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I uh, was grew up in a very average Roman Catholic family. Um, my family has lots of Irish ancestry and I grew up with a really strong recognition of like an acknowledgement of, um, my Irish heritage, especially through my maternal grandparents. Um, and I grew up Roman Catholic, which meant that I was baptized by the time I was a month or six weeks old, um, into that, into the Christian community. Um, we did not go to church all the time. And I would say that this is one thing that I've noticed is different between what my husband and I understand is like religious background is like how often you attended church was how much of a Christian you were. (laughs) I mean, direct correlation to jewels in heaven and church attendance. Like it it was a, a, a straight shot highway to the two. Right. Right. And for me, um, my Christian identity, my was just a part of who I was. Uh, it was not, as as connected to my church attendance, although I'm sure there are plenty of Catholics, especially because the Roman Catholic Church is increasingly um, uh, in the United States, at least it's increasingly influenced by evangelical culture. Um, so that is definitely there are people who would be like, no, nah, that's not true. You have to go to church and confession and all of that. Right. But I yeah, so I grew up, you know, receiving the sacraments on time. So my first communion, I was confirmed in high school, which was on time where I when, where I grew up. Um, I did not really practice my faith 
in really, really more intentionally until I was in college and at the like later end of college. Mm. Um, but when I was a kid, I whenever we did go to church, I loved it. I loved the music. I loved thinking about God. I loved, uh, I loved singing about God. I loved just all of the things that were I would associate with with church. It's just that my mom was also a single parent, mm. and so getting two kids out of the house into church was not always easy for her on one of her days off, you know? So, um, by the time I, but the thing is, is I was always in the air. Like the, I, I, it was always a part of the way you think, you know, it's the way you view the world. Like my religious identity was by the time I was in college, um, I started getting really into social justice. Um, I was taking one of my, I, one of my degrees was in political science. And so I was taking classes on political philosophy and it occurred to me that I had this background and this I, these ideas that kind of came with me already, thanks to Catholic social teaching. And so then I started returning, um, started going to mass much more frequently. And I got involved with the Catholic campus ministry my senior year of college, um, basically in an effort to kind of find some of the roots of um, for myself and mm-hmm. and to find um, like a basis for me, which is like a real basis for. Um, social justice. So that was that. I um, continued to stay a Catholic. I ended up going to graduate school. I studied at a Catholic seminary. Uh, I had intentions of becoming um, an academic, like a theologian. Um, and I, truth be told, as I really just kind of burned out, I got burned out um, just with the idea of academia. It didn't feel like the right path for me, and I didn't know why. I went to a seminary specifically because I didn't want to be doing theology in an ivory tower. I didn't want to be doing like thought experiments. Right. I was really interested in practical implications for ministry. And especially at that time, um, I started graduate school in 2006, and that was just four years after the Boston Globe had revealed the clergy sex abuse scandal. Um, And I was really interested in being part of like, well, how are we going to change and move forward? And right. so I w- wanted to do more theological work around theology of ordained ministry and th- theology around ordained ministry and its relationship to uh, just the, lo- the church in general. So ecclesiology was what I wanted to study. Um, at that time, when I started graduate school, I also started cooking in earnest. Um, so like I said, 2006, so this was, you know, when food blogs became kind of a popular thing. Yes. Um, and I had my own course. Um, and I just, I also had this family history of this love of food as well. Um, my grandparents were really, really into food and my mother and um, interested in trying things and cooking things. And so I, because I was in graduate school and not working full time, I was in school full time, I had like a different kind of schedule. And so I was able to cook and bake bread, especially um, while I was at home studying, um, and, you know, working toward this degree. Um, so the way I, the, the jump then to becoming an Episcopal priest is that there has always been a conversation between my husband and me. We met in 2003 about um, how we would uh, be a family when I was a Catholic and he was not a Catholic and um, he's a, you know, a Methodist. And it was just never really an issue for me 
Um, trying to think of the least boring way to tell this story. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was, that was always a thing. People had asked when I started going to seminary, people started asking me, well, well why don't you just be a priest? Why mm. don't you become an Episcopalian? Because there were things, obviously, in the Catholic Church that were very frustrating to me. Like one that you could never become a priest? That Is that one, one of them? Never, right, but at that time, I kept I was very explicit in saying, I don't have a calling. <laughs> oh, the classic, I'm, I'm not me, God, you know, can't be me. <laughs> totally, exactly. It was like, yeah. I don't have a calling, it's not me. I definitely, definitely believe that women should be able to be ordained and yeah, um, and especially in graduate school, I had had because I was studying. This is the other the crazy thing is that I was studying priesthood. That was like those were the classes that I was really excelling at. And one of my professors, a priest, was like, "When you apply to your PhD programs, this paper on this, you know, th this is what you should do. Like, focus on this." And he was very like supportive of me. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, and of course, I was the only woman in those classes. <laughs> um, Anyway, I was frustrated in that and a number of other things that were are more like uh, it's like um, more insider baseball about things that were happening in the Roman Catholic Church. There was a big change in um, a liturgical interpretation, like a interpretation of the liturgy into English, and then also around Obamacare, there was a real pushback on um, on you know supporting a, a, the Affordable Care Act, despite the fact that I had even interviewed. I had at this point. So after graduate school, I ended up taking a job at a, a Catholic magazine. And at this point, I had interviewed a bunch of um, Catholic nuns and women who had worked in like uh, the in healthcare and yeah. had been really pushing for affordable care for a long time. And the pushback from the from the bishops um, because there might be federal funding for abortion just sent me. It was just really yeah. frustrating to me. So anyway, not not to get in that. So. Um, at the end of school, I decided to take some a, a break, and I got hired as an editor at a Catholic magazine where I ended up being for about 10 years. And I also had a baby, and I decided to take some time away from church. Makes so it was sense. about three years. Um, and then a year after my, about six months after my kid was born, um, I ended up attending the ordination of a friend of mine, um, and I wept from a deep place. It was really strange. I was at this ordination and it was just like something was happening to me. Some deep emotional thing was triggered. Mm, yeah. Um, and that friend and I ended up having a series of conversations and he and I, he eventually after a few months of it said, again, I think it's time to examine what the tears mean. <laughs> You know, and they were always around things uh, like they were actually I was crying a lot around baptisms, I was crying around the baptism of my kid, then the Eucharistic prayers. And so and then if, then the priest of that church it was this is an Episcopal church at that time. We decided to go back and have, you know, because we wanted to be a part of a community. And I said, we are going to go to this church, but we are not getting involved. That's what I. Yeah. So we're going to come to this church. We're not getting involved. I know how like younger, young-ish people get sucked into it. Even in non-evangelical spaces, you just get pulled in and suddenly they want you involved in everything. And I made this statement before we went. My husband and I said, look, we're just going two Sundays a month. That's it. Two Sundays. We want our kid to be a part of a community, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and have a framework. I wanted them, them to have a framework for um, how 
to understand the world, which is what I had been gifted with growing yeah. up as a Roman Catholic. Um, and then, um, I, I mean, within like months, the priest was asking me if I had ever considered being a priest and et cetera, et cetera. So I begrudgingly went down that path <laughs> to, there's a process in the Episcopal church that you have to do a, a, like a formal discernment process. And so okay. I begrudgingly went down that path and I thought, sure, I'll do this. We're all going to find that there's no calling there. Right. But that's not what happened. Hmm. So, um, and I'm actually really happy that that's not what happened mm. because I discovered that I had actually been having, I'd had a call for a long time right? and had just not quite the framework for understanding it. And right. now I am a priest and I love it. So. Well, okay. That's interesting. I mean, that's a great story and it's helpful. I think, you know, maybe one of the questions, and I don't want to dive too deep in, you know, in. I don't want to be in the weeds to do deep on this, but yeah. um, I still am not exactly clear, like what makes someone Episcopalian mm-hmm. versus anything else. Like even, you know, and I think part of that's because the world of evangelicalism is so loosely defined because it's, yeah. it's all people arguing for who's the real gatekeeper of the term. And yeah. there's no like centralized authority. Then I think about my experience of the Episcopal service is um, close to Catholic in presentation from my vantage point, but I haven't really been to too many of those. Do you even call it a service or a mass? I don't know. So can you kind of give us maybe like the top three things that make you, you, as opposed to Catholic or evangelical or Lutheran or something else? That make me an Episcopalian. Yes. Yeah. So that's, it's actually, I don't want to get into the weeds. It's a complicated answer because I mean, I always joke that the answer that I give when someone asks, well, what do Episcopalians believe about X, Y, and Z? And the answer is always, it depends on who you are. (laughs) Great. Another evangelical situation. Well, the thing is different about it is that this is the Anglican way. It is the Anglican way. If you've ever heard of uh, the Via Media, which uh, Queen Elizabeth supposedly coined. Okay. So during, you know, the the Reformation across all of Europe. So, you know, obviously English, England had their own Reformation. Yeah. And, you know, there was the swing to Protestantism and then the swing to Catholicism. And you get finally get Elizabeth the first, King Henry's, you know, King Henry started, people say King Henry started the whole thing, but obviously Reformation was in the air and things were right. happening in England, right? right? Yeah. And the idea here was that, um, again, I'm like, ooh, what, what, what path to go down? The idea was that, Elizabeth tried to stop this fighting by saying, who am I to know the hearts of men? You know, basically here's these parameters and we're going to take the middle way. So people will say that to be Anglican now, of course, depends on who you ask. There are some who say, no, we are Protestant. And the Episcopal church was was called the Protestant Episcopal church. And that has a lot to do with the history of um, the history of, uh, of this, the, the, the the colonies in the United States and okay. how we ended up coming here. But we are essentially the American, we are an American church, be, although I know there are churches in other countries. We're an American church, but we, our roots are in the Church of England. Mm. So it has, it's it has an interesting history um, because it was, you know, the English uh, colonists who were over here, who that this was their church. They were Church of England. Right. Which was an established church. But then we have a revolution that says no established religion. 
So it's like, well, what are we going to do? We can't be the established Church of England in the United States where we're a bunch of rebels, right? Right. So we we basically formed our own our own church. Okay. Um, <laughs> got it. We'll, we'll just leave that there. It's complicated for now. Right. Is that's it? going. So the things that make me an Episcopalian yeah. are, one is, um, I. so is even more complicated because I'm actually a priest in the more Catholic part of the tradition. We have, you can find a real breadth of Protestant versus Catholic. And a lot of that refers to the kind of liturgical expressions of the way we worship. Okay. Um, in the Anglican communion in the Episcopal church, we, what a thing we often say is what we, we, we believe as we pray. So our, our belief is really connected to the way in which we practice and pray. So our liturgical tradition. Okay. Right. So, um, and what that means is that um, we have a prayer book. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. And that's what unites us. I think the issue that a lot of people run into when they first come to the Episcopal Church is that they're expecting a confessional faith, which is more like, like you know, the Augsburg Confessions that's associated with Lutheranism. That's a confessional right. faith. The Episcopal uh, Church is, the Episcopal tradition is non-confessional. Yeah, so there are not like a series of things. These are what we believe. Okay. Yes, other outside of like the creeds of the church. Right. Um, like, yeah, pretty standard things for almost anyone at this point. Right. Um, okay. Does that yeah. make does that clear it up a little bit? I, I think, you know, I think for <laughs> it's so man, it's just so funny because I feel like I could explain evangelicalism decently well enough to give someone like a uh, an idea of the complexity of it, mm -hmm. which is kind of the definition. And I think it's funny because I just know so little about this other stuff. You know, I, I just know yeah. so little, so little about the world beyond, even still as someone who has really renegotiated his relationship to evangelicalism. A lot of my work is about helping people, including myself now, navigate better for, uh, paths forward away from that, which means still kind of tracking what's going on in that world, tracking, especially the Christian nationalism element and just mm -hmm. how that works. So even still, I'm not like immersed in necessarily new spaces. So I'm, I'm always trying to learn like, okay, I've heard these terms. I've seen some viral videos of like, oh, this priest who's Episcopalian did this crazy thing according to this, you know, bro evangelical. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, is this what all of them believe? Like, is it more nuanced than that? So I just figured that I had to at least ask and try and get something. I mean, we definitely, as a, as a church, we have, like, we have a set of uh, canons and we have a constitution. It's just, there's just a lot of breathing room. Yeah. Which I like. We're, we're a church where that is really wants to be able to hold a lot of unity and difference. I mean, to me, why it was such an easy move and something I actually resisted also for a long time because I was, I didn't want to go, but people always refer to Episcopalians as Catholic light. And I will tell you, not true. It's yeah. just absolutely not true. Noted. Um, right. And, um, but like, I actually feel more Catholic. I feel more rooted in my Catholic faith as an Episcopalian. I know that seems strange to people, especially, and it's not even like an, a, a, an attachment to particular types of ritual um, or even expressions. It's just this way of being able to say, I have this foundation, this history, this tradition, and this way of continuing to practice over and over and over again that will continue to have me on a journey. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, noted. Well, <laughs> now with, with all that, friends listening to this in the background, you wrote a book, The Sacred Life of Bread, Uncovering the Mystery of an Ordinary Loaf. Now, I have to imagine since you said that you like to cook so much or bake or whatever, this yeah. is, there's kind of, I, I'm imagining a, an emerging of two worlds, your love for theology and for like the liturgical world, right, of your faith, and yeah. also bread, which of course in the Bible, bread is a huge both reality and metaphor uh, used many times. So so why this book and what's the general premise of the book? Sure. Um, the, the reason for the book is that I have actually had been wanting to write this book since I first visited a friend's farm, another Episcopal priest. Uh, her farm is in Michigan and it's uh, called Plainsong Farm. And I went to a wheat planting there. Um, I was invited by her and by another friend to go plant wheat and the wheat was going to be grown and then used, like milled and then used for communion bread, to be baked into communion bread. Like these okay. guilds, these other churches nearby were a part of like were bread guilds and they would, you know, purchase the bread and they would bake it into their, into their communion bread. And I was, when I had heard this person speak, this friend speak, and then I had went to the farm and I had this experience, which was, aha, there is this connection between what we do every week. We, we do receive communion. Every, we ha- celebrate the Eucharist. So the, I was going to say, answer your question, service or mass. It depends on who you ask. In my opinion, <laughs> we call it a mass. A lot of people call it communion or Eucharist. Okay. Um, and so I just was experiencing all of these like connections to the earth, um, to community, to um, just the way we eat and the way we are. I have what's called, what we would call uh, a very incarnational spirituality. And so like the idea of God is present in the world around us, present in all of these things. That is a very Catholic kind of way of looking at, at the world is that it's what's, this one theologian refers to as the analogical imagination. And the idea of that we can learn something of God uh, by the world around us, as opposed mm. to what I would say probably is more what you would find in Protestant traditions, um, and, and definitely in evangelicalism, is that there's this dialectical imagination. So the theologian, his name is David Tracy, and that's the idea is that there's this gap that has to be built or it has to be crossed, and that's you know Jesus gaps that uh, provides that bridge, oh, yes. the gap between you know us, the fallen humanity, and God. Yes, right? like he he is the mediator. Yes. Right. And so is what you're saying is that actually like the divine or God is all around us at all times. We're, yes. we're just held by it wherever we go. That would be my spirituality. That would be my view of looking at things. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's really interesting because and I, I'm actually, I have questions about this because I, you're right. I grew up very much that way or, Hey, just read the Bible. Like just read your Protestant Bible. Like all your answers about God are in this Bible. And, you know, evangelicalism, whether it was intentional or not, has created this world where people go to these events to experience God, right? So mm-hmm. like this worship space I've been a part of for my whole life that I'm no longer a part of, a lot of what I did was help create these moments with lighting and haze and dynamic songs and this atmosphere that would give people this sense of awe and wonder. And listen, frankly, that that is a human and also a Christian thing. I mean, the Catholic Church and the paintings and like, you know, the old stained glass and the reason why cathedrals are cathedrals to amplify the sounds of people singing. So I'm not saying this is just unique to evangelicalism. What I will say is that in my understanding, it was very much a one-sided approach in evangelicalism. Yeah. Now, they wouldn't say that God isn't when you leave or that God isn't where you leave. 
they would just say like, it's just different. Like God meets you in a unique place when we're doing this thing together. And I, I kind of go back and forth because I, I do think that like in my own lived experience, there are moments in the world that I'm like, something unique did happen in this moment that wasn't part of my ordinary experience of just living as a human being, you know, like it, that just happened to me at the same time. I'm drawn to the idea and the, the concept in my head that we are just always held by God wherever we go. But then I think about what happens when really bad shit happens to you, mm-hmm. right? And like when pain and suffering, or for many people maybe listening who have been, uh, sur- who are survivors of horrific, horrific, horrific abuse, I can imagine them saying like, well, Megan, this idea that God is always holding us is really nice, but where was this God when this happened, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts on some of this stuff? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, I have the questions all the time myself. I mean, my first qu- the first thing to say is that I think you're 100% right that there are special things that happen in those worship experiences. I mean, there are people coming together. I mean, I am a priest in what's called the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Um, enjoy looking that up later. It's also... <laughs> have um i laugh i cry i i don't know it's uh, okay it's a, it's a, <laughs> so it's um you know i chant every sunday and we chant and lots of smoke uh we have a, a incredible True. choir at my church yet yeah, lots of sense so it's a very like uh sensual experience same thing and these are all meant to right to they are i always the way i like to remind people that we cannot worship these things these are the they are the means to the end they're the things like leading us to encounter God, right? We're not worship. We have an issue where sometimes people will say we worship the smoke. Um, <laughs> they are they are not the ends. They are the means. They lead us to an experience of God because you know that those things are actually helpful. Um, and that is those are very incarnational things about the people who are like, well, I experienced an absence of God. I this is where I absolutely look at. Protestant theologians, and I think about Protestant people with a more Protestant spirituality, um, who can point to the cross, and that's what I would say. I would point to the always point to the cross. Is like there is a, both an absence and a presence in the cross. There is an mm. absence of God, and also a presence of God. And to know that that Jesus, in that absence, I mean, cries out to God. You know, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, and is still Jesus. Like to know that even Jesus, the Son of God, experienced that absence is is just something to to for me to always ponder as to the absence that happens in the cross. Walmart's Black and Unlimited platform is making it easier than ever to support Black-owned brands. When you go to walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited, you'll not only get to shop products from Black-owned brands, but also learn about founders like Janelle Stevens of Camille Rose, which specializes in products for naturally curly hair. Or the Allison Devon, founder of Teespressa. And there are many more awesome products that you have yet to discover. It's all easy to find with Walmart's Black and Unlimited platform. Join in on celebrating Black brands today and every day at Walmart. We are Black and Unlimited. Visit walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited to discover more. That's walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited. So um, one, just one follow-up question, then we'll dive more into your book. Um, okay. Sorry, we're just on this, this train of thought. Okay. I think it's really important for the community. It's okay. Um, and it's good to have your perspective on it. I think what I would in wrestling with is because you mentioned that, you know, you have the incense. It's a very, you know, sensual experience. I'm assuming you mean that in the sense of like the senses are activated. The right? senses. Right. Yes, right. Yes. All the five senses. Yes. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, right. Makes a lot. It makes makes sense. I think that what would you then how and maybe I'm too binary in my thinking about this, but. OK, so 
we don't worship the incense, right? The incense is like the vehicle almost is what I hear you say, mm -hmm. but also the divine is around us at all times, wherever we go. So yep. like, is it, a you is, unpack that for me. How do those two statements work together? Um, um, entirely sure what you're, what you're asking. I mean, God is with us. God encounter. I, I believe that God encounters us, you know, in lots, lots of ways, but I also believe that there's a certain mystery to the mm. way God is, you yeah. know, and I can't explain to you why I believe that God is present. I do. I just believe in the, the constant presence of God around us. And yeah. also at the same time, I know that in my very, you know, human created creature way that a practice of encounter, like attempting to encounter God and putting myself in the space of like, now I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not walking around thinking like, God's here, God's here, God's there. Right, like all the right, time, right, right. You know, especially right. Like I'm making dinner for my kid or doing the dishes. <laughs> right. no, or when uh, my kid's in timeout. I'm certainly not thinking that. You know? Right, <laughs> right, exactly. But just that regular practice of going to a space that helps me to, re to remind me. Oh, I like that. The constant presence of God. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I, I was just asking because I think a lot of people, and I'm one of them, I'm, I'm still working through my own experience of like that special moment, right? Versus yeah. like the mundane, so to speak. And I'm like, I know God's in both, but like, how does this work? But I like how you put it where you're, you're I, you know, you pretty much said those experiences are a reminder of what is happening to us when we are not thinking about it cognitively. And I think mm -hmm. that's a really helpful way to kind of merge, at least from my brain, to kind of reconcile, well, is it that it's more spiritual there versus here? But no, no, it's a, re it's a reflection or a reminder of what is happening all around us with maybe some physical realities that we actually see instead of mm -hmm. what's invisible around us. So, okay, yeah, thank you for explaining that. It's really helpful to have your, your perspective. So, this, so your book, The Sacred Life of Bread, you know, yes. what the, the synopsis is, I'll, I'll read it for the audience. The whole world is, is contained in a loaf of bread. And Megan Murphy Gill has captured not just that, but our humanity in her lovely book. Part memoir, part history, part reveling in the beauty of bread. She takes us on a journey that will never let you look at that hot dog bun or dinner roll the same <laughs> way again. All right, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. So, so why this book? Tell me. Yeah. So the reason is that I proposed this book during the pandemic when mm. um, when everyone was baking sourdough, mm. right? And I just was- My so wife is so guilty of that. We, we make so much sourdough. It was good, by the way, but yes, absolutely. Right, and you had time. And part of it was that you had time, right? Yes. Now, what I wanted to do is to figure out why I want at least to spend some time reflecting on yeah on the mystery of bread. You know, we use bread in my tradition in the most like the a very holy place in the sacrament of the Eucharist, and I and all cultures have some form of bread. It's pretty ubiquitous. Bread refers to life in so many different languages. It refers to money. It refer you know life. It refers to like when you talk about bread, you yeah. often mean like you know you mean life. So I. I thought there is something else happening here. I don't mm. think it's just that everyone has time to bake sourdough. There are lots of things we could have all have done. You know, we could yep. have, I mean, and lots of things people did do, right? But like- We could have binged a lot of Netflix. Not that I, I did that in the pandemic. Right. I definitely did not, but you know. <laughs> but like this thing like that kind of started to unite people. Yeah. I mean, I like me, I also, I had a side. I've had a starter going for many years, but, um, and I found myself sharing starter. I found myself mm. telling, you know, with my friend saying, here's where you can buy flour. I, uh, I was working as a hospital chaplain during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and, um, 
I remember going to um, one of my shifts and dropping off sourdough English muffins I'd made for some friends of mine, like dropping them off on their porch. And this was like this source of connection. And I was like, but what is it? Why bread? Why not something else? Why bread? And so I decided that I was going to look at bread at different stages of it becoming bread because I had gotten the idea for the book when I was at that farm. And I had originally thought, I'm going to trace from seed all the way through growing, harvesting, um, milling, Mm. to baking, and then finally breaking and eating bread. Uh, Ultimately, I did write a lot of those chapters. It ended up being, the bulk of the book ended up being too about agriculture. (laughs) And so I had to kind of go back and say, well, I got to go back more to bread. There is some agricultural stuff in there. And, um, yeah, that's what I sought to do. I, again, I feel like I'm bringing my, my, my Catholic take on things or my, do it. I love it. Things, I'm here for is, it. Which is, I don't have an answer. You know, I don't have an answer as why bread, but I wanted to reflect on these things that bread has meant to me and to meant to so many other people that might reveal some of that mystery about why bread is so special. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. It's one of those things that you just take for granted, but you're right, as I was thinking about it, it's everywhere and it's used in all kinds of contexts, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's it's communion or whether it's at an Italian dinner and you just want to, you know, clean up the rest of your sauce, right? Or yep. gravy, I'm not going to get into that debate, right? Or whatever it is. Um, or you're you're in a pandemic and you're trying to make your first starter ever or SCOVI, I think is what it's called. Is that right? A SCOVI is refers to a kombucha. It is a starter. That's right. That's what I'm thinking about. That's, mm-hmm. my, wife, my, my wife made both, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but you know, well. yeah, yeah it, it, it takes a lot of work. Like it's not easy to do that. So no. for you in the book, like do you, I'm assuming you tie bread back both to the physical and to the spiritual. How do you do that? And what are some of the points that you want to, that you bring up? Yeah. So I start with the idea of um, a kernel of wheat being planted. And I frame this, one of the stories I like to tell is that I, um, I, uh, one of the prayers that I say when I'm celebrating the Eucharist, um, it is a prayer that you, it's like an offering prayer, but when you receive the bread and the wine and you set it on the altar and it actually comes from, um, I don't know the Jewish prayer, but I, I have learned that this it's, has, its roots are actually Jewish. So the prayer I say is, blessed are you, Lord God, of all creation, for through your goodness, we have this bread to offer. I'm like doing that motion with my hands. Um, uh, but we have this bread to offer, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. And in that prayer, I feel there are a couple of things that happen. One is that we acknowledge that this is fruit of the earth. So even before the bread becomes bread, it starts in the soil. And the soil, and then in the book, I talk a lot about like the role of dirt in Genesis, you know, mm-hmm. dirt, humans, hummus, the idea of like we are created of dust, we are of the dirt. And so all of creation has this role or has this start like in the dust, like in the in the dirt. Um, and then we talk about then in this other part of that prayer is and the work of human hands. So what I per- particularly love about what we do in the Eucharistic celebration is that we acknowledge, you know, we bless God, thank you God, we're thank you for we're thank you, <clears throat> we are offering this bread which comes from you, and also what comes from like wheat, but also we have done something with it, right? Mm. We have turned it into bread. Yeah. And now we're gonna and now we're gonna offer it back to you. So it's not that we take 
So we also do the same for wine. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. For through your goodness, we have this wine to offer fruit of the vine and work of human hands. Again, acknowledging a gift of creation. We did something with it and now we're offering it back to you. And these things are going to become, you know, we, again, depends on who you ask, what's happening there in the Eucharist, (laughs) the body and blood of Christ, right? So we're going to participate in this meal that is sacred in a very particular way for us. Um, Hmm. And so I... So that's one of the w- things I talk about is the importance of the soil and growing the soil being what we kind of return to I tell a story about being a chaplain during um, the pandemic and well, actually right before the pandemic going to on Ash. I was Ash Wednesday was before right before the pandemic started. And I remember visiting uh, the hospice unit in the hospital and they wanted ashes. Mm. And I just was like, why do you want ashes? This whole family, this dying young woman wanted ashes on their forehead. And I was like, what reminder do you need here? You're in the hospice unit. But then for me, it was, it was incredibly holy because as I was doing it, putting it on all these different generations, like members of, you know, members of her family of different generations. And then also myself, like I had it on my own head and I was like, Oh, this is a reminder of our common, like our common heritage, which is the soil. So even in this moment of death, we're reminded of our actual, of our unity. And I just, I, so I talk about the soil. I talk about a lot about like family. And then I really get into, um, so about tradition and heritage and, you know, the stuff that the places we come from, I, the, the story about the hot dog rolls, I talk a lot about the importance of place in like an actual like location. Um, I talk about new, new England hot dog rolls because that's where initially I grew up, which is, was in New Hampshire and my family is from Massachusetts. Um, and also, um, I talk a lot about practice again, that bringing my own kind of Catholic Episcopal spirituality is the importance of practice of returning again and again. Cause as you know, if you've, if you've done a sourdough loaf or you've made sourdough, it's something that kind of keeps perpetuating itself. And the more you do it, the better it gets. Yes. And the more, and, and it's not always because of you. It's because there's just wild yeast in the, you've created an mm. environment that allows your bread to just flourish a little bit more. Huh. So, and huh. I, and when I think about these things, I always think, well, they're just wonderful metaphors. But what I would then return to is that sacramental imagination and say, are they just metaphors or are they actually revealing for us something of God? Do they point to something in a small way? Do they give us a glimpse and point to point for us to something that we should, you know, then take back into our own lives? I think about like in that sourdough culture, there's like a community of yeast and things thriving and, you know, things happening. Um, just the idea that you break and share bread with each other and that the idea that a sourdough keeps perpetuating itself, are they just ma- metaphors or do they reveal again, that ima- an analogical imagination? Do they reveal something to us about God mm. in a very, in small glimpses? <laughs> I mean, I've never really thought about these things this way. So I'm kind of in the moment with you verbally processing my initial thoughts. And I think a lot of what you said is just so beautiful and very compelling. Um, whether it's bread or just, yeah, you're right. Does it reveal something about God and like how this stuff all goes down? 
I'm I'm kind of curious. I mean, I think <laughs> this might be kind of way out of left field, but I'm just wondering while we're in the moment. Do you talk about what happens when you eat moldy bread? Because I think a lot of people <laughs> in our community are like, I ate the bread and like it made me kind of sick afterwards, right? And like, is 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 there a, a connection to this? Like anything, any thoughts on that at all? I don't know because and I, I know that maybe for you, our audience is very specific, mostly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know who listens to us completely, but like this was started off of, hey, you know, whatever we grew up in like has not helped us long-term. It's, it's not nearly maybe as bad as I once thought, but it's way more complicated and I think problematic. And I'm not sure if a lot of the theology I was given uh, was helpful long-term. And so I think a lot of us might be like, how do we trust finding new bread after maybe we thought we were eating some good stuff before? It turns mm-hmm. out it kind of made us sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. This is a random thought, but while well, we're here, I figured I would ask. It's, I mean, it's so, in- I have another, I have a friend who is a spiritual doctor. She's Catholic and she and I always talk about how evangelicals are all deconstructing. <laughs> it's so true. We are. I'm like, it's just like not part of our language. Like there's nothing right. to deconstruct. <laughs> Excuse me. That's not, yeah. I mean, that's not true for me. It's not true for her. And sure. um, it, I'm sure it's true for a lot of, I mean, there are definitely Roman Catholics who have to deconstruct. But yeah, I understand they're all, you all have to deconstruct. I don't have anything in my book about moldy bread. Um, I don't. And I, um, it's just, it's interesting. I, um, I remember when I was in graduate school, I mean, obviously I can talk about analogical stuff and being like, oh, well then this reveals God. And I remember a professor saying to me, the importance of having like a Protestant take on things as well, is that when you end up with, um, if you end up with this analogical idea only, you start to think that you have God in your back pocket. Mm. Right. And that's a thing that we would like always caution against is like, God is always infinitely more mysterious than any, what any religion, any tradition, any practice is ever going to reveal. I mean, by the nature of God, God is infinitely more mysterious. Right. And I, I, so I feel the pain of needing to deconstruct and I feel the pain of being like, wait, what? What was I being fed? But I would wonder about, I mean, my, my I feel bad for anyone to have been like, no, no, I learned all these bad things about God. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I my heart goes out to you is what I want to say. I want, I want to offer some sympathy, even if I can't completely empathize. Um, it, 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 it makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think maybe an easy example of like a thing that a lot of us were taught early on was like, hey, you're just not a good person. And if you don't pray this prayer, you're going to burn in hell forever because God is just and good. I mean, I think I think maybe that's like one just like line that I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I was taught some version of that. And, you know, as we get older and we digest it and we inhale it and it just kind of sinks into our being, I think a lot of people were like, you know, not only does that match that does that not match my human lived experience? Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, upon further reflection, I'm not sure if that's like a healthy belief about God or maybe even an accurate one, even even in the Christian tradition. Yeah. Maybe I was kind of given a very specific piece of this pie and told this is all there is, but there wasn't, right? Right. I think um, I think a lot of people are frankly hungry for new bread, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and yeah. they're like, you know, books like yours and people that we we talk about are kind of... I almost feel like you're feeding people um, oh. a healthier way forward that's rooted in like a much 
more life-giving, human-flourishing, let's-care-about-our-neighbor way as opposed mm-hmm. to the systems that many of us grew up in. Yeah. I mean, I ultimately, that's so emotional. Like, that's a huge compliment. That's ultimately what I wish, I hope to do. I feel yeah. like that's the calling is yeah. to remind people, you know, of the infinite mystery of God and of the ways also that we can encounter God. Um, yeah. There was something, what was I going to say? When you were talking, I was just thinking about, I was thinking about the role of scripture in evangelical culture. And like, I, I mean, we joke in Catholic and more on the more Catholic end of Episcopal, of the Episcopal tradition is we joke about how we're like, oh, whatever scripture, Um, (laughs) that we don't really know it. And that's not, that's also not true. And I would I don't know. I was thinking about, you know, other forms of bread for people. One, I, I would always invite anybody who's in, interested in anything like this to uh, come to a Eucharist somewhere. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and then experience and see. I, I have actually a number of former evangelicals in my congregation. Uh, so it's it, it that happens. It's, I'm, I'm aware of um, – my church is located very close to Moody Bible Institute. And so we have a lot of former Moody students who come to – uh, come to my church, um, and who have inc- have in- experienced incredible encounters with God in the Eucharist. Um, but I, going back to Scripture, is that I I have been really enjoying my life as a preacher because I um, I have to spend so much time with Scripture, and I have this I have been having these like aha moments of like oh there's this one tradition. It always says this, that this is what this means, right? And, you know, and the way we encounter scripture is always through a particular tradition, regardless. Right, right. Right? We're always going to encounter it through a particular tradition. And um, there are, the stories about bread and agriculture have been really enlightening to me. I did a lot of reading of those in in, in writing the book. And there's one, uh, one story in particular that I felt like, oh, there is, there's, there's life in this, this part of scripture that I always felt very terrified by. So I'll reveal real quick that in seventh grade, I accidentally went to an assemblies of God school and that's a long story. <laughs> My mom sent me there. Awesome prayers. Jesus. Accidentally. And okay. of course I was, I wore a little, Mary medal around my neck and my Bible teacher, who was also my history and English teacher was not into it at all. And I, she really came after me. So my response was, I'm going to be the best scripture student there is here. And I really got, I got really into it and I was really interested in studying it. But there was this one story, the one story that really challenged me and like affected me for years and years was the story about the threshing floor. Mm. and the wheat being separated from the chaff on the threshing floor, right? And I was so anxious about this for years. And I remember praying my little 13-year-old self being like, God, save everybody. Just save everybody. Don't send anyone to hell. Don't send anybody. And I was really – so I do understand that fear of hell. Um, And then when I went to graduate school at a Catholic seminary with a number of men who were from more agrarian communities, so in like Africa and Asia – and I took a New Testament class with them. And I remember learning that about what threshing floors and how what wheat and chaff actually is, right? And so there is this, um, this again, this relates to, to bread because, again, I think, oh, we're, we can have something that reveals to us something of the mystery of God. So that wheat kernel mm-hmm. actually needs the chaff 
and it's not something separate. It's not an us or them. The chaff protects the wheat while it's growing, right? And it has to be burned away. Of course, I mean, it has to be removed so that kernel can become what it actually is meant to be, whether it's more wheat, right, to grow more seed, or it can be milled into flour, which will then become bread, or it can be eaten as food. And someone once recently reminded me, it also can be malted and turned into beer or whiskey, (laughs) you know, elixirs, right? Um, So... Anyway, I I guess I share that story to be like, I think that perhaps one of the ways if you have to deconstruct, but you're afraid to like go away, I think returning the scripture can actually reveal a lot of really important things. I don't necessarily disagree. I think a lot of people (laughs) have been kind of re-encountering the Bible for the first time in a long time, thanks to Um, the work of other helpful folks uh, that we either know or that they know through like their own circles. So I think that's really wise. I think that's really helpful. And, you know, I was just, yeah, I was just kind of curious on your thoughts regarding that because I think for a lot of people that are still kind of new to this, I mean, deconstruction is a, I think now overused term, um, <laughs> but, you know, people are definitely renegotiating the relationship to their faith. I think that's fair yeah. to say. And some people walk right out the front door once they get above ground. They're like, I'm out. See ya. I don't want nothing to do with this. And I can't fault them for that. I totally get it. I respect the journey. Some people are like, holy moly, I'm in a huge house. Like, I want to explore these rooms. And so that's why we have these conversations, like to explore the room of Megan and, you know, and the Episcopal world and your book, you know. So I, I think it's helpful to have your expertise and your help from a different angle of like, Right. These symbols might mean more than just metaphor. You know, yes, mm-hmm. maybe these things is, are pointing us to a reality about God always, um, you know, um, wrapping us, even if we don't always feel or think that that maybe they are or are not doing that. So I think that that's mm-hmm. really helpful. And I appreciate you sharing that with me Thanks. for sure. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, well, listen, um, is your book out now? When, when does it come out? The book came out in June. Oh, perfect. Um, yep. So it is available everywhere, uh, wherever books are sold. Um, I obviously plug your local bookstore. If you can order yes. it there, that's always the greatest. Um, bookshop.org is also a place where you can order online and it will go, you can choose what your local bookstore is. Obviously it's on Amazon. It's also available like Target, Barnes and Noble, all of those places. Um, and if you buy it and you yes. like it, like yes. everything, it needs a review. <laughs> oh yes. Give the review people. Absolutely. Review and do you Get have like a, Amazon. do you have like a public profile? Do you have a... I don't know, Instagram, Twitter, where can folks find you? Yeah, you can find me. I have a newsletter. Um, I'm always rethinking the title, but it's it's still there. It's God Talk. It's, it's at Substack. So godtalk.substack.com. Okay. Uh, and yeah. I have my Instagram is, um, it's Memugi, which is the first two uh, letters of each of, of my, my name. So M-E-M-U-G-I. Cool. Sounds good. Well, friends, the book, again, The Sacred Life of Bread, Uncovering the Mystery of an Ordinary Loaf. Megan, thank you for making time being on on the podcast. It was great having you. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk about this stuff. You got it.
Walmart's Black and Unlimited platform is making it easier than ever to support Black-owned brands. When you go to walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited, you'll not only get to shop products from Black-owned brands, but also learn about founders like Janelle Stevens of Camille Rose, which specializes in products for naturally curly hair. Or the Allison Devon, founder of Teespressa. And there are many more awesome products that you have yet to discover. It's all easy to find with Walmart's Black and Unlimited platform. Join in on celebrating Black brands today and every day at Walmart. We are Black and Unlimited. Visit walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited to discover more. That's walmart.com slash Black and Unlimited.